I'm Chris Peterson, and this is KindredCast, a podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, we present a special bonus episode featuring a conversation from The Vasey View, a Kindred Media podcast hosted by Lord Ed Vasey. On the show, Ed and Lion Tree CEO R.A. Borkoff welcome former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. The conversation tackles topics ranging from tech's drive to disrupt the ultimate monopoly of government to the role that digital innovation can play in reshaping the new world order and bringing more benefits to more people, regardless of political party or economic station. In the full episode, Ed speaks one-on-one to Chris Yu, who is the executive director of the technology and public policy team at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to dive deeper into the Institute's ambitions and focus. To listen to the full episode, search for The Vasey View and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts. To listen to other Kindred Media shows or receive our Take a Break newsletter, be sure to head to the link in our show notes. Now let's hear from Ed, Arie, and Tony Blair. Hello and welcome to this week's uh, Vasey View, which has a... Cophony of voices, which I hope you'll be able to navigate your way through, but it is a very exciting addition. I've got three guests. The first guest uh, really needs no introduction. It's Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of the UK between 1997 and 2007. And the reason I wanted to talk to Tony Blair is that I think that he is one of the, if not the most thoughtful voice, certainly in the UK, on technology policy in the sense that he and his institute, the Global Institute, have developed a real narrative, obviously from his perspective, of how the progressive left could and should embrace technology to achieve the social policy outcomes that the left is traditionally associated with, health, education, uh, and narrowing the divide in society. And I think uh, he's absolutely fascinating on it. Tony is going to be joined in the discussion by my friend and mentor, Arie Burkoff, who is the co-founder of LionTree, and LionTree sponsored this podcast. But Arie is one of the foremost technology and media bankers in the US, but is a very thoughtful man who uh, often uh, reflects in his own podcast on how technology is changing society. And I thought uh, the engagement between Tony and Arie is going to be fascinating in terms of a US perspective and a UK perspective. That's the first half of the podcast. And after Tony and Arie uh, depart, I'm going to speak to Chris Yu, who works at the Global Institute for Tony Blair and is, in fact, the guy who writes the technology policy manifesto alongside Tony Blair. Uh, And we're going to take a high level view with Tony and Arie and then with Chris, dive a bit deeper into some of the specific issues. Uh, that the Global Institute is working on as far as technology policy is concerned. So without further ado, let's start the conversation with Tony and Arie. So Tony, let's just begin with uh, the central question. You say that technology is the central question of our time. You comment on lots of other important issues facing the UK and the world, whether it's Brexit or coronavirus. But when things are relatively normal, you've taken up technology as a major theme. And you say that really, not only is technology the central question of our time, but there's actually a sort of divide between those who get this, who understand that, and those who haven't yet worked that out. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's 
the way the way of looking at it in political terms is it's it's like the 19th century industrial revolution. I mean, if you if you think um, back and read about those times, I mean, it, it began. It turned into this completely transformative um, force, changed everything about the way people lived and worked and the way communities were. And eventually, but actually only after several decades, it then transformed politics. And the issue really today is this 21st century technology revolution is going to change everything. Um, you know, you can see this indeed during, during the COVID crisis, it's changed the way that we, we, we work. Um, it's changed the way that we live. And if you think over the next 20 years, it will change healthcare, education, transport, law and order, and change the way government works and change the way we look at the world. And it will change every single company and every single walk of life. And so it is this all encompassing revolution. And yet I think there's a part of the public that worries that it's it's all taking place without their consent and it's going to displace jobs and it's all very frightening. And then there's a part of um, the rest of the people who say, well, it's you, you, and I would include myself in this, who say, look, it's a fact. So you've got to understand it, master it, and harness it. And that, I think, is what is the big political challenge. So, Ariad, you are at the coalface in terms of the U.S., and the U.S. is seen, obviously, as where everything happens first. Do you see a similar change happening in the U.S., a similar divide, if you like, powering ahead with technology on one hand? First, Ed, thank you very much for having us. And I completely am honored to be in the presence of Tony talking about the government and technology intersections. And I think what Tony just articulated is perfectly said, but I don't think it's a U.S. phenomenon to your question. I think it's a global dynamic, which is really the essence of what technology brings, which is reach. And technology doesn't really have a consideration for different languages and cultures as much as the final um, extension of its innovation. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of people believe that uh, technology from a governmental perspective, is all about how you run a campaign and using social media and digital advertising targeting. But I think it's much deeper than that in terms of its innovation. And I agree that the pandemic is the ultimate accelerant to all these trends and also shines a light on areas of our society and our industries which have not yet gone through digital transformation and sort of encourage the catch-up. And I think... Uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said just at the beginning of COVID, this has taken two years of digital transformation and brought it into a two-month spurt. And that's exactly what's been happening. And, and there are industries that have yet to catch up. Healthcare, education are two very important ones. But then the overall mechanics of the government, I think, and how the innovation of government decision-making I think is is hallmark to the manifesto and Tony's platform now, uh, which I think is worth really delving into. But at, at the end of the day, my view is the best technology is the one that recedes into the background of impact and the output of what the technology is supposed to accomplish, which is you know a just society, quality, and obviously innovation and growth for everybody, not just a zero sum game. 
I do want to delve into that. And I, you've given me a nice segue into what I wanted to ask Tony about, which is that there are sort of two challenges, it seems to me, that technology is imposing on uh, government. One is uh, the sort of consumer challenge. You know, if I can get something in 24 hours from Amazon, why can't government services be the same? But there's also a sort of democratic challenge that government is uh, sort of under pressure, in a sense, from technology, the world of disinformation. Uh, I hesitate to use the word populism, but uh, the fact that, uh, you know, lies can run around the globe and it's very hard for government to keep up with that. So there are sort of twin challenges. There's a straightforward consumer challenge. How do I be a better government in a technology age? And there's the kind of disinformation challenge. How on earth can I articulate an argument in this cacophony of noise? Do you think that's a fair representation, Tony? Um, yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, in, in a funny way, I'm more interested in the, in the consumer aspect of it. I mean, I think the implications of the politics are enormous. Um, I think social media has transformed the way politics is conducted, but actually not really for, for, for the betterment of, um, of politics uh, or humankind particularly, but I think it does. And I, I'm, you know, I'm interested in that because I'm in the business of politics. But the thing that I think is most important for politicians to see is because, of course, they'll think about that issue. And of course, by the way, they'll think about questions of privacy and, you know, how do you regulate Facebook and all the rest of it. But what really interests me is how do you take the transformative power of technology and harness it in a way that, for example, allows you to improve the quality of education for the poorest people? bring healthcare to the poorest parts of the world in a much more efficient way? How do you tackle climate change, uh, which can only be tackled ultimately by um, science and technology? Um, because otherwise you're telling the world it's got a choice between consuming and the environment. So yeah, I think these are the things that really interest me. And what they require, of course, from government is government's going to have a different skill set, different types of people coming into it, and probably you need a, a different and more strategic government. And, you know, you, you know it from the work that you did as a minister. I think there was a, a time when, for example, the UK government was very focused on this, but I, I think it's not so much now. And I also think there's a, there's a risk that, um, you know, because for the very reasons that Arya was giving, which is, you, you know, this this is this enormous global force that it gets bound up with a kind of um, anti-globalization politics and we end up not understanding that ultimately this technology is immensely liberating as i say if we understand it and harness it that's fascinating i mean there it, there is a paradox i mean obviously one doesn't want to get disappear down a rabbit hole talking about the politics of brexit but there may be something in the fact that people feel to a certain extent, paradoxically, that technology is taking away control of their lives and people want more control of their lives. But Arya, in a, the US, funny enough, the British are quite keen occasionally to point out that actually the US is quite backward in terms of the digital services it offers. If you want to open a checking account in the US or whatever, is the US government across this agenda? Well, I mean, the, the U.S. government uh, does have uh, a, I would say, around industries that could be uh, fully digitized with the encouragement of the government. They're trying to do that in areas like transport and obviously uh, broadband access. 
but it takes a long time to accomplish these things, I think, I believe, in the public sector. The private sector has a real speedboat approach. And I think what you're seeing from these technology goliaths in the stock market and in the, in, the, in the capital markets today that really kind of hold most of the market capitalization, that's really going to, I think, permeate into other industries going forward in sort of a growth transformation mode where you get into financial technology, healthcare technology, food technology, and start to really disrupt these industries, just uh, staying with education, because I think that's probably the area that's most pronounced during this pandemic of having to be disrupted. When you look at the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 or, or the FTSE or, or whatever you look at, and you look at where they are today versus which companies existed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they're completely different. But if I told you, here's a list of the top universities in the US or in the UK or around the world, they're exactly the same as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And that could be because of some sense of establishment and nostalgia and quality, but also lacks disruption and digitization embedded in that trend. So that's going to change, in my view. And then that is that is the paradox, I think, Tony, which is that... Um... You know, in the US, there's a big tech clash going on about uh, the monopolistic tendencies of tech, but actually government is the real uh, monopoly, and uh, it's very hard to disrupt government. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And the one thing I will say to people is that, you, you know, if, if uh, the, the Labour Prime Minister from 1945, Clement Attlee, came back to Britain today, um, you know, he would think the entire world changed um, in terms of our industry, our services, the way we live, the way we thought, the complexion of our country, but he'd go back into the seat of government and feel completely at home. That's the, the, the challenge for government because there are, you know, government should regard itself as using technology in order to empower the citizen. For example, one of the things we look at in the work we do in Africa is how digital ID can help change the interaction of government with the citizen in a way that allows the citizen better access to services and cuts out a lot of corruption. It's one of the things that India has, has done in the last few years actually quite successfully. But everywhere you look, as, as Ari was just saying, this process of digitization and, and the changes that are going to happen, um, they're just going to increase the pace. And the other thing, of course, is that in the big geopolitical question, which is America's relationship with China, the position of technology in that is absolutely central, as we've seen from debates in recent days um, around TikTok and so on. If for politics, the big challenge, in my view, is to get a grip on this, to grasp its importance, and to re-engineer politics around it. And the, the strange thing is that at the very moment when, frankly, that is not really a left-right matter. It's a change that's happening of a profound nature, driven from outside of politics, but with massive practical implications for people. You know, the very moment when you require people who are, are skilled in this, understand it, and have practical solutions, politics has gone very ideological, left and right. It's a crazy thing, really, because you need to try and establish some form of political consensus around this, because that's the way you will get a policy environment that's predictable and helpful. 
it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it sort of answers your first point about technology being the central question because the emerging Cold War between China and the US is about technology. The Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West was about ideology. Where do you think this is going to go between China? I'd love to hear both Arie and Tony on, on where you think the US-China tech standoff is going to go. I have to say what Tony just said was worth really pausing on because I totally agree. Tony, he just really laid out the exact forward-looking world order and how technology is sort of the blood in the veins between geopolitical factors. And also the inverse is true. It's a very complex topic because it's driving relationships between superpowers. It's also has a stake individuality among citizens and, and digital identity. And at the end of the day, when you have a cross-border factor that's so big, like technology is a broad term, how do you govern it? How do you regulate it? Because ultimately, it doesn't have borders. And how do you then intersperse the political goals of a particular region, a particular country, with its uh, ability to innovate and foster and house global companies that have technologies that, that cross over between borders, sometimes countries that don't get along with each other. Very difficult topic, and we need to understand it better. Yeah, no, I think this is absolutely at the crux of the way the world develops. So the way I, I see it is that if you take America and the West relationship with China, my view is it's bound to become in some dimensions, confrontational is already, of course, but bound to become more so. It will, in some respects, be competitive, and technology will be one area of competition. But you have also to reserve then a space for cooperation because it's very difficult to deal with the global challenges we face take climate, take the pandemic, or stabilization of the world economy. It's hard to deal with these issues without the cooperation of China. So what would be sensible from a policy point of view are two things. Number one, that given the importance of technology in this relationship, America and Europe should cooperate together. Um, they should try and create some common standards around technology. And they should realize that ensuring that they're supporting and helping develop the next generation of technology advance is massively in the interests of the Western world. And therefore, they've got to approach policymaking from a standpoint of how do you create the most healthy environment for these companies to, to grow and the need to be powerful. At the same time, how do you create a situation in which there may be, for example, in areas like healthcare, and there could be many others, in which if you decouple from China completely, you lose the benefit of some of the groundbreaking technology that's going to be developed in China. So you need to see this again, instead of, as it were, looking at the geopolitics first and then simply trying to work out how you manage the technology. If you refracted that and did it in a different way, it's also important to look at what is going to happen in technology in the future and what bearing does that then have on how America and Europe 
look at policy in respect of technology. This is again just emphasizes to my mind the degree to which this understanding of and ability to harness technology is right at the center of the debate because otherwise it makes no sense to try and formulate a strategic framework for your relationship with China in the 21st century. I love the way this conversation has gone because we started by me asking you whether the divide between those who see technology as a central question and those that don't. And I started really with that question thinking in a deeply conventional way, which is, you know, technology is transforming the way we hire taxis, so we need to think about it. And we've ended up with China and the US and the new Cold War. And I sort of try and compare it a bit to nuclear weapons. In the 80s, we got very excited when there were summits in Reykjavik and SALT treaties. And really what I think you're saying is that the new world order and the relationship between states is actually going to be driven by trying to see consensus on technology policies. We keep going big picture, but I think what Tony is actually saying from my lens is start with what the basic needs of a society are and what the consumer really needs. And don't let yourself elevate into nuclear wars or geopolitics or technology innovation. Let's talk about food supply as an example. After you figure out where you want to live, you figure out how you're going to eat. And food supply is completely getting reworked by technology. And there's a massive interdependence between China and the U.S. in this area. That's what the whole you know, trade agreement has been about with farmers, et cetera. So food supply is one area of what the consumer needs that is getting revolutionized by technology and also plays into global politics. So I think you have to go back to like what the essential needs of a society are and how is technology going to work with government to deliver those things. Because ultimately, that's what we care about is how are you going to get through the day? How are you going to get through a happy life that can sustain with, with all the things that you need? And technology is playing into that across borders. No, I, I think this is absolutely vital. And by the way, to be able to reserve some space for cooperation on technology with China would be important. Well, I think that's right. And let me just crawl back to a position of credibility in this uh, three-way, which is just to end on a note of optimism from both of you, I hope, Tony and Arie. I think what I'm trying to say is that any head of state, any whether it's a president or the head of the EU or the president of China, when they have their calls, technology should be front and centre of what they're discussing. The interconnectedness is not going to go away and how you start to have a conversation about technology at this kind of level. The first group of politicians that work out how to weave this technology revolution into a narrative of optimism are the ones that will succeed. Because in the end, of course, for all the challenges it's going to provide for us, its solutions are to our problems. It's immense. It's an immense field that can give you a lot of cause for optimism. And that's what people need. I mean, they default to populism and people to blame and a counterproductive form of politics, in my view, when they're pessimistic, when they think there's not a hopeful future. And the truth of the matter is, properly harnessed, technology will allow us to feed the world, to look after it, to educate it much better. I agree. I think that the conversations between governments around technology should have a two-sided coin. One is 
plugging the holes of the weaknesses and dangers of technology in a more regulated and safe fashion so that everyone has comfort that there's a an oversight mechanism. And two is to talk about the upside, the competitive advantages, the ways that we can improve our lives, as, as Tony just said. And I, I think that's probably good management period for any business, right? You, you, you plug the holes of the dangers and you kind of shine a light on the upside to make sure that's properly uh, adhered to and invested in. Uh, and I think if you have that dual approach of the shadow and the light around technology, I think that the, the world could be a better place, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much. You're both very busy people. I'll leave you both to go and uh, save the world. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ed. Thanks, Arian. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Tony. Great to talk to you. That was an absolutely fascinating discussion. As I say, I think it took us from why technology policy is central for any policymaker to why technology policy is, in fact, the framework for international relations. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Thank you.